Hollywood for Smart People for Monday, June 24th, 2019. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the program. I'm Nico. I'm your host talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. What's it been? Two weeks? Man, I missed this show. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry for being neglectful. I do apologize. Sometimes life gets in the way, though. Um, And I had a chaotic week last week and was not able to hold up my end of the bargain. So I do apologize. But Cultured is back after a two-week hiatus. Um, And the reasons why, I guess, will be saved for another podcast. Later this week, I'll do a, a Nico show episode and we'll dig into my week from hell because that's what it was. The turmoil just continued to accumulate. It was nonstop, like one of those Jacob's Ladder toys that you had when you were a kid. It just grew and grew and grew and grew. And uh, we're at the end of it now. So it's time to settle back in. I cannot wait to talk about the world of Hollywood, the world of popular culture, the world of art. And I have been dying to start with this subject um, for several weeks, and I haven't had an opportunity to discuss a movie that I saw in the comfort of my own home, in my pajamas, laying in my bed. I watched a documentary film on Netflix, and it was one of, I think, yeah, one of the two or three most anticipated movies of the year for me. Yeah, it's probably Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Star Wars Episode Nine, and Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. Rolling Thunder <laughs> Review. Um, Man, I have so many thoughts on this movie. Where should I begin? Well, obviously, Martin Scorsese, the director of this documentary, one of the most important filmmakers of all time. Bob Dylan, the star of this documentary, one of the most important musicians, if not the most important American musician of all time. These two figures are especially significant in Nico DiGregorio's life. Um, Martin Scorsese, one of my favorite filmmakers, directed two to three of my all-time favorite films. And Bob Dylan is... Yeah, one of the five most important cultural figures of my life, for sure. Maybe one of the most important people in my life, like full stop. Like I would put him in front of at least two to three immediate relatives. <laughs> like he has just become this like north star in my uh, in my pop culture consumption as of late. It wasn't that way growing up. Like, obviously, there were certain artists, certain filmmakers, certain musicians that spoke to me as a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. Bob Dylan was not that person. But as I've grown older and grown a, a fonder appreciation for, uh, for art and for culture in, like a, in a profound way, in an adult way, Bob Dylan has sort of become the guiding light. Does that make sense? Like, if you're looking to make interesting, provocative art with a distinct point of view and a distinct voice, Dylan is the example to follow. Like, if you're looking to make a statement with your work, it better look something like that. Th- that's that's it right there. 
That's the Mona Lisa. That's the Statue of David. That's Shakespeare. It's Dylan and it's everyone else. Those are the two tiers in my head, right? And the older I get, the stronger I believe that. The fonder my appreciation grows toward Dylan. He is truly an American master. And so obviously another documentary by Martin Scorsese about this guy is appointment television. This is not the first Bob Dylan documentary that Martin Scorsese has worked on. Back in 2005, the film No Direction Home, a three-hour and 28-minute behemoth, behemoth of a film uh, was released. That's another Martin Scorsese, Bob Dylan project. I believe it debuted on PBS. It was one of those American Masters documentaries, so I, I assume that it was multi-part. I, uh, I enjoy that documentary very much, and I enjoyed this one as well for remarkably different reasons, and we'll dig into that as the review goes on. I want to go back in time before we get into the specifics of the movie and sort of retrace my relationship to Dylan, because as I just described, it is a relationship that has grown more nuanced and more complicated as the years have gone on. Um, so let's start in the summer of 2017, just two years ago, dad and I go see Bob Dylan live in concert. And I did a podcast about this after it happened, right? Super excited. By this point, I had become well-versed with the Bob Dylan song library. And I, I listened to this guy nonstop. He is the soundtrack to my life, essentially. And, uh, was super excited to see this. And we go to the show, and I talked about that on the podcast. You can go back and listen to that episode of The Nico Show from June, I think, of 2017. And uh, 8 o'clock, show is set to begin. Theater goes dark. There are just a few sort of house lights. Not even house lights, just sort of like weird stage lights that faintly lit up the back of the stage. So it's hard to see anything other than silhouettes and precisely at eight, like this to the second eight o'clock out come a number of figures, including the iconic It's really what it is. The iconic silhouette of Dylan with his scruffly hair and, uh, and meek demeanor. And it's two hours of just this remarkable concert the dude did not talk in between songs. Like There was not one word uttered to the audience that was not sung. It's just like, the music is going to do the talking. I'm Bob Dylan. I don't need to pander to you. I don't need to cater to you. Like I don't need to make you feel good. My job is to perform remarkable music, and that's what I'm going to do. So that's like a two-and-a-half-hour show. There were like a million Frank Sinatra covers in the set, which kind of confused me, <laughs> but I was into it because it's like, wow, this guy's an artist and he just marches to the beat of his own drum. And this is exactly what he would be doing, whether or not he was famous. Like if Bob Dylan was still alive, never broke through in the sixties, he would still be doing this exact same act. And I just loved that. I loved that the show wasn't full of greatest hits because I've seen a number of greatest hit shows. I saw Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. I saw Stevie Wonder in Hartford. And I love both of those people. But they are an example, and they are typical of most 
70 to 80 year old musicians. You have 20 to 30 years of your prime. You make great music that can last you a lifetime. And then for the next 30 to 40 years of your career, you tour the country singing the same shit. And that's cool. That's fine. In fact, that's exactly what the audience wants. But Dylan ain't doing that. Dylan don't play that, bro. This guy is a musician through and through. And once he stops making original art, there's no reason for him to exist anymore. So yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. Were the songs that he performed anywhere nearly as good as Hurricane or Like a Rolling Stone or Blowing in the Wind? Hell no. But he's out there doing it because he's a real artist. I mean, after all, this is the same dude shared a stage with Martin Luther King on the National Mall, was there for the I Have a Dream speech, marched in many a protests, won a Nobel Prize in literature as a songwriter. He's the real deal. They don't call him voice of a generation for nothing. So fast forward a year. It is the summer of 2018, maybe the fall of 2018. And I'm reading Chronicles Volume 1, Bob Dylan's memoir. And I get to this little anecdote that blows me to pieces. And I'm going to read that anecdote for you right now, and then we'll talk about it. So here's the scene. Dylan is a young up-and-comer, had just arrived in Greenwich Village, New York. I think he was living in Detroit for a little while. He's obviously from Minneapolis. So he had just made his way to New York was just signed to Columbia Records. And he's in this office room with the head of publicity at Columbia. The guy's name is Billy James. So the conversation between Billy James and Dylan begins with this question. This is Billy James' question. How did you get here? He asked me. I rode a freight train. You mean a passenger train? No, a freight train. You mean like a boxcar? Yeah, like a boxcar like a freight train. Okay, a freight train. Billy asked me who I saw myself like in today's music scene. I told him nobody. That part of things was true. I really didn't see myself like anybody. The rest of it, though, was pure hook'em, hophead talk. I hadn't come in on a freight train at all. That's the end of the story. Um, and I read it. And uh, I was like, my life is a lie. (laughs) Yeah, my life is a lie. Nothing I believe is true. Everyone's lying to me all the time. Um, What's the point anymore? (laughs) Now, to you, this may seem like an innocuous anecdote, but to me world-shaking, like life-redefining. Bob Dylan, in his early days, told a lie. And it's not just any lie. It's a lie about himself, his story, his origin. Whoa. Like, let's, let's unpack this a little further, right? So Dylan, as it turns out, had actually hitchhiked his way to Greenwich Village, New York. Like, just got picked up off the side of the road, assumingly with a a guitar in hand, and uh, he tried making it in the Big Apple. 
That's the truth. But he doesn't tell the guy at Columbia Records that. Instead, he spins this story about a freight train. Now, in the next paragraph, Dylan says that it was just all hophead talk, which means that he was a young man on a lot of drugs and the drugs were talking. It was just a lie for the sake of lying. And we can all relate to that on a certain level, but I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I don't think this little anecdote would be in the book if it didn't mean something. Here's what I believe. Even at the age of 20, even in the infancy of his musical career, Dylan had a keen awareness of his own persona. Bob Dylan understood the Bob Dylan myth before it was ever written. And he knew, like I think all of us instinctually know, that riding in on a freight train is way cooler than hitchhiking. How do you read that and not totally question your reality? (laughs) Like, seriously, how do you read that and not reconsider everything you know about the human condition? Because that's what happened to me. I didn't just question my relationship to Bob Dylan. I questioned my relationship to art and my relationship to other human beings. That's what that little excerpt did to me. Because if we can't rely on Bob Dylan to give us a straight story, who can we rely on? And is this idea of the Bob Dylan mythos organic or manufactured? Because at one point, I thought it was totally organic. This dude was just singing his folk songs And people just happened to stumble upon them, happened to embrace them, and here he is, salt-to-the-earth boy, Jewish kid from Minneapolis, Minnesota, is now the voice of a generation. I thought that's how it worked. Turns out, nah, nah, no way. Bob Dylan is a master manipulator. He is keenly aware of how you see him. He is keenly aware of his public persona, and each and every decision he makes is in service of that public persona. He created the Bob Dylan myth. The myth didn't create itself. So what does this all mean? How do we deal with this? What are we supposed to do with this information? Well, you do what you always do with great art. You think about it. You listen to it. And I mean you really listen to it. Like you internalize that shit. And you approach it with an open mind in an effort to learn something. That's the whole point. Well, here's what I learned from Chronicles Volume 1. This Bob Dylan guy, he's kind of onto something. (laughs) The guy kind of knows what the fuck he's talking about. Here's what I learned, and I now believe this to be true, and it's only because I read this book. Art is not about documentation. It's about creation. The purpose of art is not to represent reality as it is. It's to represent reality as you see it. The stories that we tell through music, through television, through film, through literature, 
You do not stand there naked for the world to see. You stand there and show people the parts of yourself that you choose to share. That's art. It's manipulative. It's performative. And perhaps it's a bit dishonest. But maybe acknowledging the dishonesty is the most honest statement of them all. That's the genius of Bob Dylan. So there's this quote from Rolling Thunder Review. And by the way, this is, I think, the first time in over 10 years that Bob Dylan has done an on-camera interview. Martin Scorsese got a privilege that not many documentarians are granted. Bob Dylan was interviewed for the documentary. He is featured throughout. Here's the quote that stuck with me and uh, reinforced everything I already knew to be true about this guy. Life is not about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. That's Rolling Thunder Review in a nutshell. And I guess now is as good a time as any to tell you guys that this documentary, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Bob Dylan, is not a documentary at all. Yeah, turns out the information in Rolling Thunder Review is partially, if not mostly, fabricated. There are interview subjects featured in front of the camera that are totally made up, actors with different names, stories that never happened. There is behind-the-scenes footage from this concert tour in 1975 that was initially shot as a narrative film and has since be re- has been repurposed as real-life footage. Um... Uh, it, there's like, I mean, I, I shouldn't call it a cameo. There are multiple appearances by Sharon Stone where she just like makes up essentially the story about fucking Bob Dylan. I mean, it's not explicitly stated, but like Sharon Stone is interviewed by Martin Scorsese, said that back in 1975, she was a Dylan groupie. No, never happened. She's just telling made up stories. And uh, none of this is obvious unless you're like a big Dylan head. Like, I didn't even realize I was being duped until afterwards. Like, I did find it a little odd that Sharon Stone was in the movie. And I did find some of the scenes a bit off kilter. Like, it, it was a little stagey. Some of the footage seemed a little stagey. But for the most part, I bought it. And that was the intended result. It worked on me. Scorsese and Dylan duped me. And look, man, many people on the internet are mad about this. I've seen several negative reviews, several negative tweets. There are audience members that feel betrayed by the documentary, um, didn't understand the point. And on a certain level, I get it. But my sort of pop culture journey over the last year has led to this moment. Like, I was prepped for this. I get this. I feel like I've done enough legwork to understand the intention of this movie. I understand what Dylan and Scorsese are trying to say. Art is performance. And to acknowledge it as performance is the most honest an artist can be. So, that's my spiel. You might get it, you might not get it, but there it is. There is my argument for Rolling Thunder Review. I think you'll 
find something in it you'll like. I guess that that is my cautious recommendation. I can't recommend it to everyone. I'm not sure everyone will fully embrace the mockumentary angle. But just as a work of filmmaking, as a work of cinema, Scorsese directs the shit out of this thing. Um, like, Scorsese is just as good a documentarian as he is a narrative filmmaker. He might actually be a better documentarian at this point in his career. He's done some incredible music documentaries in the past. There was a George Harrison documentary from a few years ago. Obviously, The Last Waltz, one of Scorsese's first movies, is one of the great concert films of all time. He just approaches these things as a fan of rock and roll. And that's what I love about it. You know, like he loves these artists just as much as you love these artists. And he has this this way of of getting out of the way. And I appreciate that um, because he's not always that way with his his narrative films. He can sometimes be a showy director when he's behind the camera. But in these documentaries, it's so poignant they, they are so well-made, so expertly crafted. And if you're a fan of music, maybe you're not a Bob Dylan sycophant, but you just love a good concert movie, um, this footage from the Rolling Thunder tour is absolutely remarkable. Like, this is the most magnanimous I've ever seen Bob Dylan. It, it's incredible, incredible stuff. The conceit of the tour, it was like a small tour in 1975 Dylan had just broke it big. Like, obviously, he had been around for a number of years, but Dylan was a full-fledged superstar in 1975. And so he wanted to put this tour together that played at mostly small venues. It would be an opportunity for audience members to experience this superstar up close and personal. So the show is presented as this, like, carny sideshow almost. I guess you would call it a medicine show. That's the correct um, term. But Dylan is wearing like white face paint at every performance. And all of the usual suspects are there. Joni Mitchell, Patti Smith, Joan Baez, uh, Allen Ginsberg, as a matter of fact, all out on tour. Um, And it's like this big ensemble concert series called A Review. That's where the title comes from, R-E-V-U-E. They used to call these things reviews. And it wasn't financially successful, but the actual footage of Dylan performing, it is the most magnanimous I have ever seen this guy. And I've watched a number of Bob Dylan live performances in my day. Um, Man, it, it is so electric. The energy of this tour is just palpable. And Dylan, although a great songwriter and although an important figure in American music, is not known as a great performer, but man, he just kicks it into high gear in this movie. Like, his performance of Isis, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, uh, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, whoa, this guy is just wailing. And whoever the guitar player was, I think the dude... He might have been like David Bowie's guitar player. I'm forgetting the guy's name now. I read this last week or something. Like, this dude just shreds on guitar. It, it's, it's really something to behold. From a musical level, there is no Dylan live footage as good as this. Seriously. It, it is awesome. It is just awesome. So if you like rock and roll, if you like art, if you like Dylan or perhaps you're skeptical... 
something in this movie for you. Please see it. I'm done now. We're going to take a break. More, more cultured around the corner. Stick around. We will be right back. So there's this new show on HBO just debuted last week called Euphoria. And I want to talk about this show. It stars Zendaya, Disney Channel favorite Zendaya, star of Spider-Man Homecoming Zendaya, and it's about teenagers. Here's the long and short of it. These teenagers live in a small town. These teenagers do what teenagers sometimes do. And those things are, and I, I have a comprehensive list in front of me. Let me check this again. Teenagers in the show Euphoria. Uh, oh, right. Here it is. Number one, have sex. Number two, do drugs. And uh, yeah, end of the list. Yeah, okay. Just end of the end of the list there. Um, <laughs> guys. There's a controversy surrounding this show. Oh, yeah. We're getting back into controversial territory. Let's talk about the internet backlash because everybody cares what the internet thinks. People are mad about this show. And I'm not entirely sure why. I have some guesses, but I'm a bit confused because I thought we had moved past some of this shit. I thought we had moved into a new era. You know how like every once in a while, it's like 2 a.m., you're on the internet. You should be asleep because you have work the next morning, but you're on the internet just fucking around. And all of a sudden, you stumble on Club Penguin. And you're like, whoa, Club Penguin's still a thing? That's the reaction I had when I was reading reviews about Euphoria. Because I thought we had moved past the pearl-clutching era. I thought we had moved past the era of parents losing their shit about what their kids are watching. I thought we were done with it. Like, I thought Columbine happened, the Reagan administration happened, do you know where your children are? I thought we had done all that already, and the internet had blown that shit up. Because back in the day, this was a major concern. Parental censorship was a major, major concern. Like, there were parental locks on certain channels, there was panic about the content of of some movies and some television shows, parents were worried that, like, Marilyn Manson's music was too violent, and because the Columbine shooters were fans of Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson must be stopped immediately. Keep your kids away from that guy. Like, like these are things that happened 10 to 20 years ago. But then the internet happened, and, like, everything's on the internet... Like, you got Logan Paul on fucking YouTube showing videos of dead bodies hanging in a Japanese forest. Like, there is porn around every corner. Every child has seen pornography. Every single one of them. Literally every single one of them. There is not one exception. So, like, the content that kids are consuming is way worse than it used to be and also far harder to control than it used to be. So, like, I thought we were done with this whole epidemic. I thought we were done calling Quentin Tarantino the Antichrist, you know? (laughs) But turns out, nah, the panic is still alive and well. 
Much like Club Penguin, paranoid parents are still a thing. <laughs> because Euphoria is on Sunday nights, HBO, and moms and dads all across the country clutching their pearls and screaming, What about the children? Here's my understanding of the Euphoria controversy. And by the way, full disclosure, I have only watched one episode. Did not watch episode two. So take this with a grain of salt. I watched the first episode of Euphoria expecting something exploitative, in poor taste, offensive, and and ultimately garbage. Like I was expecting a trashy television show. That's not what I got. I thought for the most part, Zendaya, a captivating performer. I thought she was really good in the premiere. I like her. I like her presence. I like her vibe. I like the vibe of the show. It was artfully directed. It, it had an interesting visual look to it. Um, and I didn't find the situations to be particularly exploitative or offensive. I thought they were maybe an exaggeration maybe not the high school experience I grew up in, but the situation seemed plausible and it seemed like a version of the truth, if not the truth through and through. And also, like, I was just interested by the story and interested by the characters and I will continue to watch. Um, here's my take on the controversy. Correct me if I'm wrong. And again, I've, I've read a number of negative reviews about Euphoria. Um... Moms and dads don't like Euphoria because there are too many cocks in it. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's it. I think there are penises on screen and people don't like seeing penises. Right? Are, are, are we on the same page there? Yeah. Okay, and look, look, man, if you have any other grievances, don't at me, bro. Like, don't even start. You know that's what it is. You know that's why parents are all pissed off. They're not pissed off at the drug use. They're not pissed off at uh, the depiction of an overdose, the, the idea of teen suicide. It, it ain't any of that. It's not even the underage sex. It's not the titties. There are titties on this show. No one's saying a word about the titties. It's the dicks, man. It's the cocks. People don't like cocks on TV. Which, okay, fine. I guess that's a matter of taste. I'm not really into it, but like, I don't shut off my TV in disgust because there are too many parts of the human anatomy. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that, to me, does not make or break a television program, but it seems like that's what it is. Seems like there are too many dicks on screen. In fact, there's one dick that is erect. It's like a 40-year-old man who's about to have sex with an underage girl and uh, penis is uh, a little blurry, but still uh, stiff. Got a hard on, and it is depicted in explicit detail. Look, man, I get that the show is a bit edgy. I get that it is trying to be provocative. You know, not it's not trolling. I guess that's the difference. There's a difference between a, between being a provocateur and being a troll. And it's a fine line. And the internet often has a way of blurring that line. But I find euphoria to be well-intentioned provocation and not 
a giant middle finger to parents across the country. You know, I, I just thought there was a little more artistic merit than people are giving it credit for. And so I was not offended. I was not even like that shocked by it. I really wasn't. I think it was played up to me on the internet. And then I went and saw it and it was like, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of dicks, but I've seen a dick before. I have a dick. I think I can handle it. (sighs) Look, man, we just got to stop vilifying art. It really pisses me off to no end. Like, should teenagers be watching Euphoria? Probably not. Should kids be watching Euphoria? Definitely not. Even if they know who Zendaya is, they should still stay away. But look, you're the parent. You pay 15 bucks a month for HBO. You know what's on there. Like, don't let your kids watch it. Have a conversation with them. Like, just tell them. Hey guys, sex is a thing. Drugs are a thing. Don't do them until you're ready. How about that, kids? Like, is it that hard a conversation? Is it that? This makes no sense to me. It's like you put your kids in front of the TV because it's a convenient babysitter, and then you get pissed off at the TV for showing them explicit content. You know what's on HBO. Tell your kids not to watch it. Like, just be honest with them. It just, I cannot stand that people blame the art for being provocative and daring and interesting. That's what art is supposed to do. That is the job of a filmmaker, to provoke you. Your job as a parent is to make sure your kids can handle what they're watching. And by the way, it's not your job to shield them from the world like the bubble boy in Seinfeld. It's your job to prepare them for the day when they're ready to watch mature content, when they're ready to watch Euphoria. So when they approach it as, I don't know, a 16, 17, 18-year-old, they'll know what they're getting themselves into, and they'll be able to view it as an objective audience member. You know? I, I don't understand parents, man. It's like the TV is such a convenient tool until it turns on them. Movies are such a convenient tool until it turns on them. You know what's on HBO. You know what's in a Quentin Tarantino movie. If you don't want your kids seeing it, pay attention. And I, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Parents, you know why? Here's what it is. These conversations are uncomfortable. They are inherently uncomfortable. I, I know, man. I was just raised by a bunch of parents. I'm an adult now. I know what the teenage years were like. It was awkward. Like, my parents didn't sit me down and talk about sex. My parents didn't sit me down and talk about drugs. We didn't talk about pornography. Like, I, I was exposed to all that shit on my own. And, like, I think I handled it pretty well. And I still think that I handled all that shit pretty well. But stuff could have gone awry somewhere along the way. And again, I don't think like Mormonism is the answer. I don't think like shielding like your kids from the world and lying to them for 18 years is the answer because then they're not going to be well adjusted when they get into the real world. Like engage with them, talk with them. Like the stuff in Euphoria does actually happen. It is a version of the truth. It may not be the exact version of the truth, but it's a version of the truth. 
So quit getting pissed off at the show for making an artistic statement and start looking inward, parents. It ain't the show's fault. It's your fault. And also, by the way, let's stop overblowing the effect of television and and movies and video games on our youth. All right? Let's do that, too. While we're on the subject. You know, I'm not saying Euphoria is for kids. I don't think kids should watch the show. But enough, man. Enough blaming mass shootings on Grand Theft Auto. Stop. There is no significant correlation. They've done studies on this. No reputable organization would make the claim that video game use leads to more violence in the real world it's just not the case we are becoming less violent as the years go on we are becoming more sympathetic uh we are using drugs at a lower rate this generation is actually on the right track and it's because we have more education and more information and we're being more honest with ourselves we don't hide this shit behind closed doors it's only when we bottle these issues up that bad shit happens so like just Be honest with your kids and talk to them and quit blaming the video games. Quit blaming rap music. Whatever. Rant over. (laughs) I didn't mean to get so preachy, but uh, I don't know. This stuff just gets at me. I just thought we were done with this whole controversy. I liked Euphoria. I thought the first episode was totally fine. And I will continue to watch. Whatever. All right, um, let's get to some other stuff. Y'all see that trailer for Dr. Sleep? Yeah, Dr. Sleep. The, I guess, sequel to The Shining? Is this an official film sequel to The Shining? So Ewan McGregor plays an older version of Danny Torrance, of course, the child from Stanley Kubrick's classic horror film, The Shining. It is directed by Mike Flanagan, this Dr. Sleep is, um... Also the director of Gerald's Game, a Stephen King adaptation on Netflix. Also the mind behind The Hunting of Hill House and the movie Hush. So a competent horror director is taking on this um, this Stanley Kubrick sequel, essentially. That's what this is. So here's the deal. Stephen King does not like the original Shining movie. And he has said so in many interviews. Um, but this sequel which has Stephen King's blessing I think he was involved in the script writing process looks to be a direct sequel to the movie not to the book like that was my impression was that they were gonna adapt the book faithfully and not pay attention to the movie the original Shining movie because Stanley Kubrick changed a lot of details from Stephen King's book But it doesn't seem like that's what they're doing. The trailer for Dr. Sleep has footage from The Shining in it. And there's a scene where Ewan McGregor walks up to the door that Jack Nicholson uh, broke down with the axe. The famous Here's Johnny scene. Red Rum is featured prominently in the trailer. So I'm really interested in where this is going. I am so in. At first, I was a bit skeptical because, I don't know, I really liked The Shining and I didn't want them to mess with it. And I certainly didn't want them doing some retcon shit with the novelization. Um, But it looks like Stephen King is on board. And I'm happy about that. Mike Flanagan, obviously, has done some great work 
in the horror genre, I give Dr. Sleep my tacit approval. For now, it's tacit approval, but it's approval nonetheless. That trailer got me going. I love The Shining, one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I think my favorite horror movie of all time. Check out that trailer. Debuts in theaters November 8th, 2019. All right, what is this report about The Matrix? Can we get to the bottom of this? Is this for real? Please tell me this is not for real. I saw this on Twitter, and I haven't found any reputable entertainment publications report it. So I I don't know if this is confirmed. But... Evidently, the Wachowskis are working on a sequel slash reboot of The Matrix with Michael B. Jordan in the leading role, set to replace Keanu Reeves, and I guess what they're calling a Matrix sequel. Um, look, man, I love the first Matrix. In fact, I just talked about the first Matrix on the Movie Hall of Fame this week, and Adam and I went in-depth in that movie, and uh, as a matter of fact, spoiler alert inducted it into the movie hall of fame for the year 1999 and i appreciate what the wachowskis did on a visual level on an artistic level it's an ambitious movie it's an outside the box movie and it takes a real visionary director to put that thing to screen so i do not want to undersell the work that those two people have done however it's a big however (laughs) Matrix 2 and 3 fucking sucked. Reloaded and Revolution. Oh my God. Are those movies stupid as hell? I have no confidence in Lana and Lily Wachowski to to make a, a compelling Matrix movie again. I really don't. Let's see what these, these, uh, these guys, I shouldn't call them guys. They're, they're girls now, right? The Wachowskis are now the Wachowski sisters. Um, let's take a look at their previous credits over the last couple of years. Sense8 on Netflix, a universally panned television show, ran for two seasons. Jupiter Ascending, ugh. Speed Racer, ugh. Cloud Atlas, ugh. actually I kind of like Cloud Atlas. oh man i don't know this seems like overkill i i actually would be interested in another director taking the reins sort of like what ryan coogler did with the rocky movies when he made creed it's like those rocky movies for the first six installments were all stallone and then sometimes you take a young filmmaker that grew up watching those movies and he can put an interesting spin on the material if they're gonna do it I understand the Wachowskis, this is their baby, and uh, it, it, it would uh, be improper to do the movies without them in some capacity, but if they gave their blessing to like a young, let's say Ryan Johnson type person, or, or another like young sci-fi leaning uh, visionary director who grew up watching The Matrix and was influenced by The Matrix... I just think that's a better version of this. I think reboots are are well-suited for different voices. I just think it's better if you put more people in the room. Because a lot of times, these franchises have been played out. And there's nothing more for their original 
filmmakers to say. And that is my worry here. And I'm also worried because the Wachowskis just haven't made a good movie in 20 years. <laughs> and ugh, that's a problem. I love Michael B. Jordan. Oddly, actually, I kind of want Keanu in the movie. Like, we're at this post-Keanu phase. It is the keanu Assance. Is that what we're calling it? The reeves Assance. Summer Keanu. He's in everything. John Wick 3, Always Be My Maybe, Toy Story 4. Like, this would be a good time for Keanu to make a Matrix cameo. Like, this is it. Strike while the iron's hot. I don't know. Maybe you put him in the Morpheus role. You know? Yeah, maybe you have him be the red blue pill guy. And then Michael B. Jordan becomes the new Neo. I'm very skeptical. I say thumbs down on the Matrix reboot. Thumbs up on Doctor Strange. That's where I stand. Anything else? Anything else we got today? I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're good. Oh, shit. Hold on. I have one more clip I want to play for you. And then we'll go out on this. By the way, you can, of course, find each and every one of my podcasts on our website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com or tmt.media. That is where you can find everything from the world of Too Many Thoughts, Movie Hall of Fame, uh, the, uh, the Nico Show, Why Is This a Thing? We'll all be back this week, maybe Two Cents Radio at some point. You never know. Um, do give us a follow on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, at TMT underscore media, or on Instagram, at Too Many Thoughts Media. Helps us out a lot. Give us five-star reviews, ratings all over the place. You know the drill. Okay, here's the clip. Vin Diesel posted this on social media this week. Or, wow, it was, I think, like two weeks ago at this point. It is an update from the world of fast and furious oh wait a minute no this was a long ass time ago oh my god how long have i have i spent not doing cultured whoa shit how long ago did i write this down this thing says april 26 2019 ah i'm sorry guys why did this just come across i don't know anyway okay Here's a clip from Vin Diesel explaining a uh, a casting update from uh, the world of Fast and Furious. Playing now. Anytime you're ready, YouTube. Guys, as you know, I'm always thinking fast and thinking about the responsibility and making something iconic and deserving of your loyalty. I know this sounds crazy, but every blue moon... I feel like uh, Pablo up there sends me someone. Another soldier for the fight for truth. And uh, today, someone came by the Toretto gym that speaks to what Pablo would have brought me. All love, always. That was John Cena. (laughs) The latest warrior in the fight for truth. (laughs) 
And this has been Cultured. I love you so very, very much. And please come back next week, won't you? Because you know what happens then. You and I, we get cultured. Love you. Love you.